uh, speaking for us today. Uh, I'm going to introduce them really quickly. Come on up. Uh, Chris and Bridgie, for those of you that don't know, most of you do know, are missionary candidates with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and they're doing their home service and a little more here at True Vine. Um, so the goal eventually is to have them serve overseas uh, as missionaries. I'm not going to go more into depth. If you want to, you can do that. But uh, Chris and Chris is currently going through the ordination process with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and Bridgie's going through the consecration process with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and they both need to do some preaching. Uh, for that process, but also because Luis is on paternity leave, we want to just kind of spread out the opportunities here. So I'm going to pray for them really quick. You're going to hear from both of them today. I think Bridgie's going to kick it off and Chris is going to back clean up. But Bridgie's batting first, second, and third though. So. All right, Lord, I thank you for Chris and Bridgie and Heidi as well. And bless their whole household, Jesus, and their time here. Uh, being prepared for what you're calling them to in the future. And I pray this morning that we as a congregation would be receptive to the word that you've given them for us from Nehemiah. I pray that they would have clarity and, and comfort and ease, that they wouldn't feel any self-consciousness or anxiety over this, Lord, but they would just deliver to us what you've taught them this week. I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Just to clarify, what Jim means is that I'm setting Chris up for a grand slam. So that's the only baseball reference you'll ever hear me give because I don't really care about baseball. Um, okay. You can open the first slide, Scott. All right. So as you all know, we've been going through Nehemiah. We're going to continue on Nehemiah 3 today, which is where Jim preached from last week as well. And I want to start off by saying this. So Jim introduced me a little bit. Um, Chris and I are preparing to go overseas. And if there's one thing that you know about me by spending even a small amount of time with me, it's that I'm very passionate. Um, I assume the best in people. I assume the best in circumstances around me. And so when systems around me are broken, I'm very sensitive to that. Um, I'm going to share a couple of those things that specifically apply to our city. Um, but if you ever want to talk about some of the brokenness of the world, I could tell you a lot. And it's all things that I care about and I'm passionate about because our world is broken. Um, yeah. If you talk to Chris, if you talk to Val, if you talk to my in-laws or anyone here who spends time with me on a regular basis, these are some things that you know about me. And so this chapter, while being considered one of the most boring in the whole Bible, um, people tend to skim through it. Um, we're spending two weeks on it because it's important. And, yeah, it speaks to my heart deeply, even just reading through it um, these past couple weeks. So, um, yeah, we can stay here. We're good still. As we've gone over the past couple months, or the past month or so, I think we've been on Nehemiah for about three or four weeks now, there's a couple things that we've learned. We've learned that Nehemiah is a great leader. We've learned that he is a man of prayer who is seeking after what it is that God's doing. We've learned that he is a man who is willing to fast for the sake of his people, so give up food for a certain amount of time in order to seek spiritual depth. And we've learned that he is a man willing to repent on behalf of his people. Um, one of the words that Luis introduced to us is shiva. This is the Hebrew word that kind of encapsulates all these ideas. He sits before the Lord. He weeps. He repents. He mourns for the sake of his people. 
And so to kick us off, I'm going to kind of share a couple of the things that apply to our city that I'm willing to sit Shiva before the Lord. I'm willing to mourn. I'm willing to repent on behalf of our people because God's, God's hand is at work in our city. And there are walls that need to be built back up, and there are people even amongst us who need to do some of that work. Um, so poor education is one thing. We have, you can go to the next one. Um, in Philadelphia, we spend about $15,000 a year. These are just a couple of statistics on a student per year. Meanwhile, this is again something Louise touched on a couple weeks ago. Last month, it was approved for a $7 million investment into property in Northeast Philly for a new prison to be built. That's just for the property. That doesn't entail the billions of dollars that's going to go into that prison. And I'm not trying to make a political statement here, but there are people saying, our city is saying, that we would rather invest in a prison than the, the education of our children. And when you, look about, when you look at the information that applies to the schools that have been closed over the last, not just 30 years, but even over the last three years, as many of you know, a lot of our elementary schools and public schools have closed. It's time to sit Shiva in front of the Lord for the sake of our future generations. The people most affected by these schools being closed are those who are already living in poverty and primarily our African-American brothers and sisters. We're saying, you're not worth this investment, so we're going to close the doors of your schools. It's time to sit Shiva in front of the Lord because our walls are broken. Now, something I want to point out about Nehemiah is that we've learned he's a man of prayer. He's a great leader. He's one who's willing to repent for his people. He's willing to fast. He's willing to make sacrifices in and of himself for the sake of his people. But before any of that happens, he cares enough about his people to even ask. His brothers come and see him, and he says, how's our city doing? How's our home doing? He cared enough. He cared enough to look around and say, what's the situation here? And when he finds out that it's a wreck, he's willing to leave the comfort of the kingdom. He works in the kingdom, and he's willing to go and act and do and get his hands dirty. So before we even talk about praying, before we even talk about fasting and repenting, we have to care enough to ask and to look at the situation around us and realize that our city's walls are broken, that our world is broken. Um, another thing that bothers me in our city. Go ahead. Uh, actually, sorry. This is my little artistic input into the sermon. Go ahead. This is kind of, this is an image of some of the doors of schools that have been closed in our city. This is a photo series that was done by an organization in Philly who went into schools that are now closed and abandoned and took these photos. Okay, so next, homelessness. Now these things are just a drop in the bucket. Um, 
With a quick search on Wikipedia, I found that there are about, there are at least, at the very least, 130 churches in Philadelphia. Truvine wasn't on that list, so I know that there's more than that. 130 church bodies claiming the gospel, claiming to care about the gospel of Jesus. On average, there are 650 homeless people living on the streets. Now that is just the people living on the streets. That's not people living in shelters. That's not people holding up abandoned buildings. That's not holding up, but living in abandoned buildings, squatting. That's on a daily basis, 650 people sleeping out on the streets in Philadelphia, including in the wintertime. This is the kind of thing that makes me want to sit shiva before the Lord and say, our world is broken, our walls are broken. And the only reason I bring up the churches is because it's our job to sit shiva. It's our job to mourn, to repent, to fast, to seek what the Lord is doing in and amongst us, how it is that we can build his kingdom in our world right now in Philadelphia, in our own neighborhoods. Go ahead, Scott. These are all in Philadelphia. All right, I'm going to give one more example. And this is a term you may not have heard before. Something that bothers me in our city is this concept of a food desert. Now, in neighborhoods like ours, access to education on food and healthy eating and healthy living is pretty inaccessible, let alone actually being able to get that food. So a food desert means going to the grocery store and getting fresh fruits and vegetables is really hard to do. If you live in the suburbs, if you live in other parts of our country, it's, it's easy. You go, you know what to buy, you learned about it in school, you know that it's better to eat fresh meat and, and produce and all these different things opposed to going and eating TV dinners every day. That's something that we don't learn about in our community, let alone have access to. That's called a food desert. Even in the places where we can get fruits and vegetables, in neighborhoods like ours, there's more likely to be more mold, more bacteria. Whereas if you live in the suburbs, that's not the situation. Now there are people doing something about it. Even in Kensington, there is a whole city block designated to farming. So people can come out and they can learn about the importance of food. The reason this matters is because in situations like that, go ahead, Scott, to the next one. In living in a food desert means higher levels of obesity, higher levels of heart disease, higher levels of diabetes. That's why it matters. It doesn't matter if you're out there buying organic and buying whatever. It's, that, that doesn't matter. The point is, is that we're living amongst a lot more disease because we live in a food desert. These are the kind of things that make me go to the Lord and say, God, why, why are people eat Like, this isn't right. We should be able to go to the store and get fruits and vegetables and get meat and get things that we're supposed to eat that you designed our bodies to eat so that we don't have to then live with the consequences that people in other areas of the country don't have to deal with. These are the kind of things that make me mourn for our city. 
Go ahead, Scott. I really want to drive this point home. Before Nehemiah prayed, before he fasted, before he repented for his city, he cared enough to ask how his city was doing. He cared enough to walk outside of his own door, to turn off the television, to get off his smartphone, to realize that the walls of his city were broken. And then, when he found out that the walls of his cities were broken, that his city was broken, he was bothered enough to do something by, about it. He was bothered enough to go out there and to play his part. Go ahead, Scott. I want to tell you a story. This is a story I just heard this week, and I was trying to avoid telling it in this sermon, but I know that it needs to be told. Now, this obviously isn't Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, but this is Afghanistan. So this is the kind of situation that Nehemiah was entering into. It had been war-torn. The walls were torn down. His city was vulnerable to the world around him and to hostility. So he finds this out. He prays, he fasts, and he repents. And repenting for our people, repenting for generations before us in our family line is something we talk about around here, but I think it's a little bit confusing. And I heard a story about Chris's great-grandfather this week. In a different time, decades and decades ago, the reality for Chris's great-grandfather was he was racist. And in order to protect his family about his misguided thoughts, he bought a gun. And he kept a gun in his house because of his racism. That gun got passed down to Chris's grandfather, and it got passed down to my father-in-law. When my father-in-law found out why that gun was purchased, he got rid of it. He wouldn't keep it in his house. And to me, that was such a beautiful example of what it means to have a heart of repentance for your family and for your city, that it's still the third time telling it and hearing that story gives me chills. That's what it means to have a heart that is so willing to repent for the deeds of generations before us and for the people around us that we're willing to do something about it. All right. As you all know, Chris, he's the Hebrew scholar, went to seminary, so he's going to read through our text for us. But I'll be back. And so again, we're going to look at what Nehemiah decided to do about it. And this is what he and his people, his community, decide to do about the nature of their city. So Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hanai. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanea. They, they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Meramoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshab, that name, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banna, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Then, Jeshaniah, the Jesenah gate was repaired by Joadiah and Pesiah of Meshulam, son of Besodiah. 
They, led, they laid their beams and put their doors and their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, Meltai of Gibeon and Jadon, Maranoah, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Hananiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jedidiah, son of Arum, made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of Hashbaniah, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Harim, and Hashub, son of Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of Ovens. Shalom, son of Halagoshesh, ruler of Hath's district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The valley gate was repaired by Hanun and the residents of Zenoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. The dung gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Akarem. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shulun, son of Kolhozeth, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing over it and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of beth made repairs up to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Kelah, carried out repairs in his district. Next to him, repairs were made by the, follow, by the fellow Levites under Benui, son of Hindad, ruler of the other half-district of Kelah. Next to him, Azer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Elisha, the high priest. Next to him, Merimah, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the entrance of Elisha's house to the end of it. Repairs next to him were made by priests from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs in the front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Manasseh, the son of Ananiah, who made repairs besides his house. Next to him, Benui, son of Hadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner. And as Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle into the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Pedadiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel, made repairs up until the point opposite the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower, the wall of Ophel. All right. It does deserve a round of applause, because I'd still be up here. I'd still be on slide one. How many people zoned out a little bit while he was reading that? Be honest. You can go to the next slide, Scott. I want to be a part of a church body that has a list that is so long of the work of the Lord that we're doing that people zone out. They won't zone out because they don't understand our names, but they'll zone out because that list is so long that we just get bored of hearing about the work in the food pantry and the work in the prisons and the work in the school districts and this family does that and that family does that. I want people to be like, all right, I fell asleep like 10 minutes ago listening to you. How beautiful would that be? Right? All right. If you think you are too small to make a difference, 
Try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. Has anybody ever had a mosquito in their room when they're sleeping? Yeah. Now, this is an African saying, and here we know that's annoying, but in the reality of an African saying, being in a, room with a, clo being in a closed room with a mosquito could also mean malaria. It could mean death. So it means a little bit here. We wake up, we're itchy, it's annoying, we didn't sleep that well because there was a mosquito in our room. But the reality of this saying is a, so much deeper than that. There are children dying every day because of mosquitoes. A mosquito. All right. In Nehemiah 3, this is what we see. The majority of people working on the gates listed are families. We see priests. We see examples of specific men. We see goldsmiths or jewelers or other people working with gold. We see perfume makers. We see political leaders. Can I get an ouch? We see women. We see citizens of neighboring communities. We see a guard. And we see merchants or business people working on the walls. Now, the wall of Jerusalem sat in ruins for 150 years. And in 52 days, that list that we just read of a little bit over 40 individuals or 40 groups had the walls of the city rebuilt. That's less than two months of people just doing a little bit in front of their houses, in front of a certain gate. And that was complete. Because you couldn't build up a whole wall and leave a little bit open because then you're still vulnerable to your enemies. Less than two months of doing a little bit. This obviously isn't specifically from Nehemiah's day, but this is part of the wall of Jerusalem today, or within the last few decades. This wasn't like a little gate. It wasn't a little wall. There was no barbed wire. Nobody's getting through that thing. What can your family do to get their hands dirty? I can't tell you that. I don't know the assignment of the Lord for you. I don't know his calling on your life. But as we've been talking about for over a month now, what did Nehemiah do? He cared enough in the first place to ask, and then he prayed, he fasted, he repented, and then he acted. So I don't know what that looks like for your family. I'm not going to pretend that I do, because I don't. But it at least looks like those few things if we look to Nehemiah as our example. As I said before, this chapter, Nehemiah 3, is considered one of the more boring ones in the Bible. A lot of people skip over it. They see a list of people. It's like a genealogy in the Old Testament. They look at it. They get bored. They move on. This guy, in 1972, read Nehemiah 3. And this is what he said. I was struck that no expert builders were listed in the Holy Land Brigade. I like that. We should get the Wissanoming Brigade. There were priests. There were priest helpers. There were goldsmiths. There were perfume makers. There were women, but no expert carpenters, carpenters to be named. He read Nehemiah 3, and in 1972, he moved to Bangladesh 
and assisted in the building of 10,000 homes because of a, a chapter in the Bible that most people skip. There's work to be done because our city walls are broken. And I don't know what that work is, but it probably has something to do with your neighborhood and the people around you. Isn't it obvious that I married a winner? Yeah. Now, my wife has done an excellent job of setting up the bases. Let's see if I can bring us home. I am convinced that I do, in fact, know what God's will for each and every person in this room is. A lot of times we look at God's will as this ephemeral, mystical, sort of transient, like, oh, if I only knew what God's will was, I would do it. Well, you're in luck, because I'm going to tell you what God's will for you is today. Love your neighborhood. This is what God's will for you is, to love your neighborhood. Why? Because that love for your neighborhood is a reflection of your love for God. As much as you love God, you will love your neighborhood. Because God loves our neighborhood. This was the holy city. Right here, this section. Philadelphia was founded on biblical principles. And just this past week, I was also hearing some stories. I was. I was out in South Jersey in the hinterlands where there's more blueberry plants than there are people. And I was actually talking with some of the people that I grew up with. I said, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? Where are you living? I'm living in Philadelphia. Oh, you mean Philadelphia? I was like, whoa, hostile. That's a little violent. Okay, calm down, settle. That's my neighborhood. That's my people now. You can't just be saying stuff like that. But they didn't stop there. The attitude of the surrounding area of this city is the same as the attitude of Sambalot and the other people that were persecuting in Nehemiah's day. It is not a coincidence. We picked Nehemiah because the same weekend, God brought me to Nehemiah, Luis to Nehemiah, Jim to Nehemiah, and we all contacted each other and said, hey, are you reading Nehemiah this weekend? Because this is our region. God's will for us, he makes plain in scriptures. Love God. Love your neighborhood. Because for the city neighborhoods, I'll contextualize. Love your neighborhood. Now, we can do good in our neighborhood, in my mind, for two reasons. The first reason we can do good in our neighborhood is out of fear. That, oh, Christian Bridgie got up. They showed us a bunch of sad pictures. And, oh, I feel guilty. I feel like God's going to judge me because I looked at homeless dude with homeless hat. And I was like, bum, I don't want to help you. Or I looked at the educational system and I was like, well, my kids are going to charter school, so, or, you know, I'm out of here. I'm not dealing with that for my children. I don't need to get involved in that. And we can feel guilty. And that will make us do a certain amount of things. We will act enough that we won't feel guilty anymore. And each of us has different ratings on our guilt sensor, and that will cause us to do so much action. 
until we get that sort of pressure off of like, oh, I don't feel guilty anymore, so I don't have to act anymore, and we'll sit down. Or you can look at fear a different way, like, oh, I'm afraid that if I don't do something, God's going to punish me. And that will, again, cause us to act so far, and then we'll relieve that fear. Maybe somebody will come by and say, oh, you don't have to do so much. God loves you. He's not going to punish you. Don't, don't worry. Don't be all uppity about your school. Don't be all uppity about homelessness. Just sit down and be quiet. Stop stirring the water. And you'll settle down. Or we can do something out of love. And now I want you to think about this. Those of you who are parents in the room, if I strand you on a desert island by yourself and I give you a bowl of rice to eat, how much of the bowl are you going to eat? Whole thing. Why? Because I'm alone on the island. I don't need to show restraint. I don't need to show action. I'm just going to eat it. I put you on that same island with your child. What sacrifice are you going to make? Why? Because you love your child. And I'm saying, love your neighborhood. It's the same love. The same love that says, I would go without food for my child. If it was a choice between my child eating and me eating, I choose them. That same love, God says, love your neighborhood as yourself. This means a few things for us. Because, oh, wait, go back. Love is both the means and the end of our God. It is both the means and the end. A lot of people say, well, I don't want to show love to so-and-so. Me and so-and-so have been feuding on the street because they did X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. And if I show love to them, they're going to take advantage of me. If I do something like bake them cookies, take them over and hand them cookies, they're going to somehow take advantage of me by eating them cookies. They're going to think they got one over on me. But that's not the case, because love is the means and the end. Your goal in giving them something was to love them. Them going into their house and going, ha, 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 I tricked them into loving me. No, you didn't. I was going to love you whether you were nice to me, whether you were evil to me. My goal was the same. If someone could trick you into loving them, that would be like someone stealing from you by putting money in your pocket. How is that? My goal was to do this. You can't steal from me by giving me a 20. And you can't trick me into loving you. I'm going to do that. The only person you deceive when you trick me into loving you is yourself because that love was free. As a Christian, it is God's will that love be both the ends and the means of our life. And that can never be defeated. You have infinite power in God in that. So what's God's will for you and your family? Love God, love your neighbor, and act out of that love. Now I'm ready for the next one. So how can we love our neighborhood as ourselves? Do good to them without expecting anything in return. Because as soon as you expect a thank you, as soon as you expect cookies back, as soon as you expect them to do something, you have ruined reciprocity. Reciprocity disappears when you expect it. 
Love disappears when you expect it. If I bake you cookies and I bring them to your house and I only do so expecting cookies in return, I have not loved you. I have purchased future cookies from you. That's not love. That is not love. That is a transaction between neighbors. If I clean up in front of my house expecting that you clean up in front of your house, that is not love. That is a transaction. Look, I give a crap about my side of the street. You should care about yours. That is a transaction. That is not love. Notice when they're building the wall, nobody's like, well, I'll build my section of the wall when you build your section of the wall. But they all go out together. They're not looking over their shoulders saying, well, what are you doing? Get out of your house. Get out of here. Build this wall. They get to work. Have you ever noticed in groups when they ask for any kind of volunteer, they ask for any kind of, any reason for a person to stand out, everybody kind of sits, looks around. And waits for that first person to take a step. I mean, I'm a high school teacher, so I have to do this all the time. It's like, all right, I'm just going to have to pick the first person. I'm going to have to give the first person an A just automatically so that people start clamoring. Because as soon as that first person moves, other people are like, oh, shoot, i got to get out there. It's time to go. i got to move. i got to act. I have to do something because they're showing love to me. And even if there's just a little bit of Jesus present in that person, they'll say, ah, I want to be a part of that. So we do something good for them without expecting anything in return. Why? Because love is your end. My goal was to love you. I've achieved my goal. You need to do nothing for me now. Look at how Nehemiah loves. So if we look at the larger context of Nehemiah, he does some pretty crazy things that we're going to be preaching on over the next couple of weeks. He like lets people that are enslaved go. He doesn't raise taxes. He does all sorts of stuff that shows his heart for his people. So not only was he caring enough about them to be bothered, to act, but he's doing these things out of a motivation of love. He's not in front of the king risking his life because he's afraid of what will happen to people thousands of miles away. He's willing to sacrifice because he loves them. He's willing to act because he loves them. If he stayed on as cupbearer, does the walls of Jerusalem help him at all? No. He does it without expecting anything back. When they put him in charge, he doesn't get rich off them. He doesn't exploit them. He cares for them and he draws them back into covenant faithfulness. All of this happens because of Nehemiah's heart. If he was doing this from another motivation, he would have built the walls, set himself up as king of Jerusalem and said, pay me. But he doesn't do that because of his heart. And we shouldn't do things in our city for the sake of, see, our church fixed this. See, y'all owe us now. You need to come out on Sunday morning. You need to put your check in the offering box because our church did these things. Because that's not love. That's a transaction. Love your neighborhood as yourself. So don't wait for someone else to start before you do. Do the job well as if it was for yourself because it does say love your neighborhood as yourself. Not more than yourself, but love them in the right way. So take the amount of care, the amount of effort that you normally would for your own things. 
because that's how you love. And let me give you a freebie. This is, we got two my dad stories coming out today. First one being him selling a gun. This is the second one. One of the things that blows me away about my legacy is, you know, A, we found out things about great-grandfather that are quite different from new grandfather. Second thing is, he's got this saying. He says it all the time. He says, because Jesus loves you. I've grown up seeing that all the time. Where there's a need, something happens, there's some work that needs to be done. And as a teenager, I hated it. Because all the time I was getting volunteered for all this stuff. Where it's like, oh, son, we got to go move heavy things again. I'm like, why do you always volunteer me to go move the heavy things? Like, well, I can't move heavy things, but it needs to be done, so you're going. I guess that's what we're doing this Saturday afternoon, is we're moving heavy things again. But that investment in me is why I'm doing what I'm doing today. And I watched my dad over years and years and years of service. I mean, he'd put in eight, ten hours of skilled labor, and somebody would be like, okay, it's time to pay you. And he'd go, Jesus loves you. It's free. And walk away. And it's a super awkward way to walk away, to just be like, Jesus loves you, fine. And just like leave. Because people don't want to be loved like that. Because that requires an answer. I have recently had the privilege to start doing this with people. He's like, no, Jesus loves you. It's free. And just walk away. And just be like, bye. See you later. Like, I don't want your thank yous. I don't want a transaction. I don't want any money from you. Just know that Jesus loves you. That makes people, man, that's annoying. Like, how is he just going to walk away from my dollars? Does this not matter to them? What, does, what do they have that this isn't meeting? I've had the privilege to do this on our street, on our block, on Marsden. Outside, just cleaning up trash. One of the neighbors is like, yo, why are you cleaning up trash in front of my house? Jesus loves you, dude. It's cool. And you scoop up the trash and you keep going. I shared a story a year ago, and the relationship is still ongoing. Two blocks up between Robbins and uh, the other one that goes down, Levick. The block captain's name is Simon. Him and his family, every time I would walk by to go to Wawa, they would harass me. I don't know why. It's probably because I look like Ned Flanders and, you know, sort of like, hey, how you doing? Like super awkward dude from the suburbs in the city, whatever. I don't walk around, uh, Freddie termed it mean mugging people, where people are just walking around Philly like this and just staring at you. I don't do that. I walk around with a smile on my face because I have the love of Jesus in my heart and I just don't care. Like, I don't need to intimidate you. And so they would see that and it would look like weakness and they would harass us as we went by. A year ago, they asked for some ice from Wawa. Very rudely. And I brought it back for them. I said, Here you go. Here's your ice. And they were just kind of like, we saw the jaw hit the floor. We still talk to them a year and a half later. Because at the end of handing them that, I said, Jesus loves you. It's okay. It's fine. I don't mind getting you ice. It's not a big deal. Jesus loves you. Goodbye. And walked away. We still talk to them. We were just down there doing a prayer walk, and they stopped us to have a 30-minute conversation about the drama that's happening on that block up there. Because it works. This is what God's will for you is. 
to love God, to love your neighborhood, and to do good like all those people in Nehemiah did. In conclusion, we have to be bothered. The reason we're bothered is because God loves people. God loves our neighborhood. God loves our city. And if someone you love loves something, you love that thing too. That's just how it works. And when something you love is broken, you get bothered by that. It's frustrating. It's sad. It causes you to sit shiva. It causes you to get down and weep. It causes you to fast. It causes you to pray. It causes you to act. And it will cause you to act over and abundantly more than being afraid and acting out of fear and being guilty and acting out of guilt. But when you love that thing, you will do so much more for it than if you didn't. And I do seriously believe that it is God's will that we love our neighborhood. Wherever that is. Wherever God takes you. His will for you is to love your neighborhood. Do what's right. Do what's right in front of you. Find out where it is you have influence. Be the mosquito. It's actually really awesome to tell people, I did this for you because Jesus loves you, and walk away. Because it's going to do this crazy thing that's going to help our neighborhood so much. It's going to build trust. All of society is built on trust. All of it. And when you show people love and tell them it's because Jesus loves them and you don't expect anything back, you've just built a little bit of trust. So as I must, I must assign homework. I have a challenge. I have a challenge for everybody here, myself included. This week, show radical love to someone who doesn't deserve it and who can't pay you back. That neighbor that you've been suffering alongside, just bake him some cookies, take him over and say sorry and say, look, Jesus loves you. I love you. Here's some cookies. I know for those of us that live on Marsden, there's a couple houses on Marsden that need some cookies delivered to them. I know. Ouch. You know? I feel that. But I have, a, I have a sneaking suspicion that all of us can think of somebody where it's like, you know what? Jesus does love this person. I haven't been. I need to start. If anyone brings me cookies, I'll understand. Don't worry. I'll understand. It's okay. I'll accept your love in Jesus, and I will, I will not try to cheapen it by trying to repay you. I will just accept it. Because I'm not transacting with you. I'll just accept the payment and say, yes, Jesus, you love both of us. Let's work together and do something about it. Will you all stand and pray with me? Daddy, Jesus, and sweet Holy Spirit, we love you. We bless you.
We commit this time to you. We commit this place and these people to you. Lord, we thank you for this building. We thank you for the freedom to come together to worship you. And Lord, before we leave this place, we bind up any spirit of guilt or fear. We release love. We release joy. Father, I pray that each and every one of us, including our children downstairs, would go out and desire to love you, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. God, you are good, you are faithful, even when we are not. We and all of our neighbors are undeserving of your love, and yet you give it anyway. On our best days, we are undeserving of your love. And yet it's there, free and waiting for us, with each new morning. We thank you, Jesus. We love you. May the peace of the Lord Jesus with you, wherever you may send you, may he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Have a blessed week. Go in peace.